In this episode of the Brax McCoy Show, we have Javier Goya and Joe Clements and myself, Brax McCoy, to talk about the JBS cyber attack, talk about what you can expect in the meat and commodities markets over 2021, or as, as you know, we're making predictions as best as we can here. And we're trying to give you guys some ideas of what you can do to help yourself through what might be a troubling year. I know a lot of you guys have asked for a follow-up episode. Well, here it is, and I will probably go ahead and try to do another I want to tell you guys up front, I still am dealing with some kind of cough or cold or whatever the heck it is. So the audio is probably going to be a little bit annoying. You might hear me coughing in the background and uh, my voice sounds a little bit goofy, but sorry, man. Try my best. Enjoy. I'm Braxton McCoy, and I'm here with Javier Goya and Joe Clements. Is it Clements or Clements? I mess this up every time. Uh, Clements. Clements. Okay. Clements, I probably just yeah. did it wrong again. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so JBS is under attack, cyber attack. We had a oil pipeline shut down, what was that, about a month ago, and you know wreaked havoc. But the thing about the beef industry, as we've talked about, well, the meat industry and all commodities, or commodities industry as well, um, is that you don't see the effects immediately like you do with oil. So it's going to take a little bit before this really hits everybody. And one of the things that I have noticed Javier has pointed out is that there's a link between China and Brazil on this deal. And actually, could you just take that over from there, Javier? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's it's good to be back here talking. It's uh, I don't know if it's good or if it's if it's a little sad that, that you are so prescient and that these issues are... Um, in the forefront of what we're talking about almost weekly now. Um, and yeah, I, so when we were last discussing this, we, we really lightly touched upon sort of how there was a consolidation of multiple types of um, commercialized businesses, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's ag, technology, um, mining, you can go through the whole gamut. And the interesting thing about the ag sector, and, you know, I, I, sent this out yesterday, but I, I feel like the town crier many times about China's connections to these things. And last night, um, I, 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 I go into this article, uh, which was written last September, and it details in great length how uh, connected China is to the ag space in Brazil and where their loans are going, how they're capitalizing businesses, what parts of the ag sector that they're touching on. And to you know the JBS thing, it's remarkable that twenty uh, percent of the global just beef, and we're not talking about poultry and um, and pork, but just twenty percent of the beef production in the U.S. is at a halt today um, because of another ransomware attack. And um, the connection and footprints to China on all of these systems are—it's really hard to to overstate. Uh, how many fingerprints they have in our entire supply chain. Um, we, I don't know how we re reclaim them other than by us and our communities going so local that the major corporations lose their stranglehold. Um, but that is going to be up to every person we know, uh, all of our friends, all of our neighbors, all of our family, making a conscious decision to not buy beef from Walmart and Kroger and HEB and Randall's. Um, and that, in my opinion, is a starting point. 
Um, but that is just in the beef business. We could extrapolate this across a hundred commodities. Yeah, two two things to to add to that. Uh, the news I was just looking at five minutes ago is the cyber attack also impacted Australia, which would make sense given your China connection because there's been a lot of friction between China and Australia uh, in the last two months or so, uh, and. Uh, you know, there, there was never a question it was going to be attributed, but it's being attributed to a Russian criminal organization. And I, I'm always <laughs> skeptical whenever I see any cyber, every cyber attack ever is linked to Russia or a Russian criminal organization. Uh, I, I just feel like that's a veneer that's thrown on every cyber attack at, at this point. Uh, you know, look, I think you're right about the, the, the problem is the United States for man, since post-World War II, we've been optimizing everything towards efficiency. The whole country has been, what, what is most efficient? We basically have oriented a society around how can we make things, uh, you know, five cents cheaper at Walmart. That, that's been the economic goal of the uh, country going back 50 or 60 years now. Uh, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is uh, how do you build an economy that's more resilient? Uh, and you point out this uh, resiliency, uh, it, it means uh, local, it can mean autonomous, it can mean uh, you're doing it on your own. And one of the challenges uh, in a society like ours to that sort of resiliency uh, is no one, well, I can't say no one, a lot of people in rural areas or have lived in rural areas have, have learned to do it, but most people in our society don't have the uh, knowledge or understanding on either one, how to produce things on their own, we live in a specialized society, uh, or two, how to go acquire those goods or services from another place that isn't the big name brand store down the block. Yeah, so, so you, you, you I, I, don't, I don't think a lot of people know where to go. First. I don't think a lot of people know where to go. One of the, you know, when, when these things happen and we're all sitting here bantering back and forth on Twitter or, you know, at, in my group text messages with my family or my, in my, even in my office, a lot of the questions say to me or to whomever, well, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I get a side of beef if I live in St. Louis or if I live in New York City? Um, how do I, how, where do I start? And look, a lot of that is because uh, for a long time, we had in the uh, agriculture food space, we chose uh, to go hard on food safety, health, uh, over food security, resiliency. And so what that looked like, and this is what we're seeing in this, um, this JBS hack right now, is when we went hard on the safety end, uh, you had to have inspectors in all the meat processing plants, which meant you had to have a relatively limited number of meat processing plants, uh, which meant that you consolidated that industry down to only a handful of players in the meat processing world. So uh, you went in the United States, you know, from some time in the last 50 or 60 years to, you know, every region might have its own set of meat processors or local meat processors to now where uh, you have a handful scattered across the country. We saw this last year uh, with the pork processing plants and COVID outbreaks as well. Uh, very similar set of circumstances where uh, if you can cyberpunk uh, the weak part of the system, you can create these shortages and issues that kind of cascade through and, and create an issue for, for everyone and even for um, sets that, that aren't directly dependent. And one of the things 
uh, Braxton, maybe you can talk a little bit more about this, but my, my understanding, you know, most of my ag experience is on the, the political or, or marketing end of it, but uh, to get uh, a beef to slaughter, they have to be in a very specific uh, weight range in order for it to happen. Is that, is that correct? Uh, well, yeah, or else you're losing money really is the, the thing there. But just for, because I can already tell people have questions here. What, what you're talking about with inspectors is USDA inspection. So in order for outside of the state of Wyoming, and I think there might be a couple more states that have passed bills, but outside of the state of Wyoming, in order for you as a consumer to buy beef, even from your local butcher, that beef has to be inspected by the USDA. And anytime you involve bureaucracy, it's an incredibly difficult and cumbersome and all that and that is why we have sort of bottlenecked everything and and also your inspector might just be kind of a jerk and can shut people down that happens too. you know humans are humans and uh you know uh grudges are real and that kind of stuff affects everything so if we passed and i don't want to jump into this yet but this is the sort of the premise of the the prime act is that we would get that uh you know we would remove that part of the or that cog you know, uh, in the wheel or whatever, you know, a ranch or however you want to say that, that obstruction. So, mm-hmm. um, that's how come, so decentralization is how we would increase resiliency in, in my opinion. And then one more point of clarification, um, Javier, when you said 20% of global beef production is at, uh, JBS, I think for the average person and to some degree, even myself included, uh, when, when I actually, actually, let me clarify. I, I did say that. I think maybe what I, I, I think my intent to stay was that currently today with the JBS shutdown, 20% of total brief beef, beef, beef oh. production is shut in. I think they account for a little more than that. Um, they've not stated exactly which plants are down, but we can surmise it because we see we're sweet. We're, we're able to see sort of deliveries in and out, um, through our, through my corporate chain of business. Um, so we're at, we're at about a 20% shutdown. They're a little higher than that. Got it. So when you say shut down, are you talking on the shipping side? Like how does a hacker shut down a beef packer? I can already, you know, that's gotta be a question on people's minds out there. Well, so I, just to digress here a little bit with, um, when colonial happened, it was a 24 hour day um, constant news uh, cycle, right? And it was it was everywhere. Everybody was carrying it because, you know, people were posting pictures of going to their gas station in Richmond, Virginia, and it being out, people filling up the plastic bags. That doesn't happen with these, with these ag breaches. So I'm, I'm staring at my Bloomberg terminal. And I've been staring at it all day today, and I have special um, uh, filter screens for, for beef and for JBS. And there's very little news today. I've probably seen 10 relevant articles. All of them are regurgitating the same stuff. The most in-depth thing I've seen is that it is another ransomware attack on their communication systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, it's the it's the way they're interacting with clients. Um, I don't know if it's internal or not. And they've also stated that their backup systems weren't affected, which means that likely they don't know how deep the hack goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and and. Just on a side note, actually, a, a really good friend of ours, Braxton, on Twitter, sent me a direct message right mm-hmm. before we came on here. Um, I'm going to, and I asked him if I could share this. Um, it's Texas Panhandle Cowpuncher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love his handle, uh, but mm-hmm. he sent me a note exactly with what you're talking about. And he said, hey, I used to work uh, for a company like Kinder Morgan, which is a natural gas, you know, they're a natural gas and products pipeline company. They've got 
you know, I don't know how many multitudes of tens of thousands of miles of pipelines. And he was talking about how they all of these systems would be set up so that they were all sort of encapsulated and air gapped and had no access to the outside line. Well, we have this little banter about it. And, and I said, well, I found out about Colonial. Internally, I was told that it was a night security guy that logged into the Wi-Fi network. Um, he logged into the Wi-Fi network to download Netflix because he was bored. Mm. That's okay. how Colonial happened. Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> so like, uh, Colonial was supposedly air gapped as well. Okay. So were the voting machines, but that's a whole nother story. There um, you go. I, I think one of the things you, we also are starting to see here, and this has been the warning for a long time, uh, of pretty much everybody who works in, uh, IT and cybersecurity, which is most likely anything that can be compromised and is of any value has already been compromised. It's just that no action has been taken on that compromise. So it's it's also possible that some of the things we are seeing uh, are compromises and systems that have been in place for weeks or months or years. Uh, and for whatever region, for whatever strategic purpose that a foreign adversary uh, has, like th those are being acted on now in a very short window of time. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the odds are that we went from years and years and years where cyber hacks that influenced, um, you know, any of our critical, uh, you know, infrastructures or supply chains, uh, you know, almost never happened to now they seem to happen every two or three weeks uh, is, a, is something that causes me to pay attention. Now, I guess you could argue it's possible that they are happening all along and just never made the news and now we're paying attention. But from watching the people who follow these fields, I don't get the impression that that is the case to the degree it is now. So could this go back to the cylinder hack and we're just seeing the ramifications of that? Um, that's a good question. I, I or, don't I'm know sorry, solar winds. I said cylinder, yeah, but I meant solar winds. Yeah, I, I knew what you meant. Um, th and that's another good example of everything that can be compromised probably already is compromised. Uh, right. And you're Braxton talking about the uh, back in January, the announcement that every system the federal government uses had uh, essentially been compromised uh, in one way or another. And, and a lot of private companies were on that list as well. Yeah. And then I think there's a big Microsoft, uh, a Microsoft or a Microsoft Office uh, Outlook, uh, Microsoft server breach as well um, earlier in the year. Mm. Sucks to be using that crappy system. Um, I was going to add one thing in there. So yes, um, I, 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 I typically start with the opposite side of the what's going to get hacked next coin. So I'm I, with what Joe said. I've started with everything is compromised. Mm. Every single thing out there that touches a computer network is compromised. It's kind of like you know, in my in my view, it's kind of like sitting here going, "Oh, the Dutch are spying on the Germans." And the United States was involved. And everyone's aghast today that we might be spying on the Germans. <laughs> okay, we spy on our own people all day long, right? So I start with everyone is being spied on. Everyone has been hacked. My next question, though, is always, what does it mean if you start with everything is moderately compromised and has the ability to have a supply disruption? What do I do? Like, is there the possibility? And I personally think there is that at some point we all have to face serious ramifications for this. We have to make 
decisions for our family that are different than am I going to go to Walmart and get steak because it's going, it's not going to be there in a week, or do I need to go to Target or do I need to, to have a local supply? If I start from that premise and I work my way backwards, I then have to assume that everything in my supply chain locally that I touch is compromised and, and I'm possibly going to have to make dramatic decisions for it. Um, so when you say, you know, the old hacks, absolutely, is our is every system in our government that was exposed at risk? Can they remove the risk? And are they going to tell us if they can't? Right. No, of course they wouldn't. And, and it, I, I hate to be defending the government, but I don't think I would want the public to know if I couldn't fix it in that, in that instance. Now, on that solution, like localizing stuff, one thing people are going to have to understand is if you have like, let's say you've got five acres in your backyard with some grass on it and you go, you know what, I'm just going to raise a beef. Well, before you try that, you better contact your local butchers and see if you can even get that thing slaughtered this year. Because I'm hearing from people all across the country that are telling me their butchers are telling them it's happening here in Idaho as well. Butchers are telling them we can't get your beef in until December. Well, I mean, enjoy trying to fatten that thing in December because it's not going to be very easy to do. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's not going to be easy, you know. A couple of things on, on that idea um, is one, I think the future of the way we look at cybersecurity is looking at it like we look at natural disasters. There's things you can do to mitigate it, but in all likelihood, it's going to happen at some point and have an impact. And you can learn to uh, live your life in a way that minimizes uh, how dangerous that those cyber attacks can be to you. And I look at this as uh, we're, we're entering the phase of like cyberpunk world. Uh, we live in this world of incredible technology that far outstrips uh, the reliability of our social uh, institutions and our infrastructure. Uh, you know, we have the technology that people wrote about 80 years ago in science fiction, uh, but we still have the same society and infrastructure that we had in 1972 by and large. So we have this weird like cyberpunk setup world. Now, my contrarian view on this is that this is actually going to be very good for American society. Uh, and, you know, how can things getting hacked and shortages, uh, how can this be good for society? I think it's good for society because the United States at its core is a frontier society. It was designed as a society with baseline small farmers uh, of people who some percentage of which were, were pioneers. You know, at first it was that you just came over to the colonies and then it was that you crossed the Appalachian Mountains and then it was that you set up in the Midwest and then it was you took the Oregon Trail and then it was, you know, you settled Texas or you settled the Plains. Uh, and then, you know, eventually we were, you know, closed out Alaska in the last century. Uh, and then we had space for a little bit of time in the uh, one of the things that this does is for a frontier society, you don't necessarily have to have this big, dangerous empty, uh, frontier that of Western civilization. You can have a frontier where it's a small uh, homestead, even if it's just a backyard, where you and your family are actively working to provide for some of your own needs. Uh, I think probably everyone on this call understands that like, there's a reason why people 
who work with their hands and do practical things tend to be more conservative than people who work in jobs where they just work with ideas and concepts all day. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there is reality that will smack you in terms of success or failure very quickly in, in the world of things that you do with your hands in the world of you know physical reality. And so putting people back in, and when I say homestead, I don't mean little house on the prairie, it can literally be your backyard in a suburb, giving people that experience, the incentive to have that experience again, is a very good thing for our culture to have and could be one of the things that I, I think we're gonna have a very tough decade. Uh, the centralized institutions of our society are fighting to keep control or fighting to show that they can manage what is very clearly unmanageable. And where we're ultimately going to get is decentralization um, and we're going to become a lot more, you know, this seems to the word anti-fragile, but that's going to be because people individually are taking on some of the responsibilities to sustain themselves out of these gargantuan, unmanageable, complex systems. And I think that is overall going to be good for us. You know, I think you're right about that. One thing, uh, one trend I've noticed that's been interesting over the last couple of years is that I've heard more and more people referring to themselves as like, um, Missourians or, you know, Idahoans or Utahns or Texans or whatever. Texans have always done it, but the rest of the country is kind of catching up to that, you know, almost the old sort of Jefferson ethos of I'm a Virginian thing. And I think that's a really good, rather than being an American first, they're like, I'm an Idahoan first. And I think that's a really good thing. Just, in, just that subtle mindset shift, mindset shift is really important. Yeah. In, in, um, you know, professional politics in state level politics, there's this idea uh, that pollsters have of high self-esteem states and low self-esteem states. And Texas was always the example of a high self-esteem state. And for a long time, Florida was the example of a low self-esteem state. Mm. So the idea was if Texas did it, it must be good because Texas was doing it. But for Floridians, if Florida did it like first, it couldn't be good because Florida doesn't do anything right <laughs> first. One of the things I've seen on the ground here in Florida is people suddenly are very proud of being in Florida. And that's a result of what's happened over the last year, where you can see very clearly the difference that state level governance made in terms of outcomes for people during COVID. So that leads and, that leads me to uh, something we've discussed amongst ourselves in Brax. And I think you're the I think you're the guy to bring us to the Prime Act and Thomas Massey's proposed legislation. Um, because I think that lends a lot of credence to the idea that states and local governments um, are, have a lot more clear say in, in what people's um, sort of reaction to these mass global um, interruptions or disruptions or shortages where you can where you can make a difference or see a difference. Yeah, and I think it also gives power back to the producer. Because um, right now everything has to go through you know, the, the bottleneck of the Packers and the Cattlemen's Association, everybody knows that the Cattlemen's Association works for the Packers and not for the producers. So this would help sort of cut them out. And uh, <clears throat> essentially, I'm sorry, I'm still recovering from what might've been the coof, but uh, essentially what it would do is make it so local butchers could process local beef without having USDA, USDA inspectors involved. So a person could go and just buy beef from, you know, their local guy, and they would put their faith in him rather than some government nannies who have approved whether this stuff is safe or not. And clearly, the butcher 
the incentive is on the butcher to make sure he doesn't sell you bad meat, right? Like we don't really need the USDA involved at that level. Now, gigantic productions, maybe you can make a case for, you know, inspecting them, but the local guy, he doesn't need, you know, a nanny in there telling him how to do it right. You know what I mean? Sure. Also has very aligned incentives at that level too, right? Because you make a couple families sick because you didn't throw out a chunk of meat that looked bad as the butcher. It's going to be hard for you to get that work back again. Uh, The other part that's interesting about that for the, for the cattle producer is, is the ability to have this other market, this direct to consumer market uh, where they are selling directly to, to the consumers of their meat which I think is a very important connection to reestablish in ag world, even if it only becomes like a a niche part of of the whole ag industry. Because I think it's good for the producer to have the opportunity for that additional revenue. But I also think it's really important for the consumer to have this concept of uh, this is where the cow came from. You know, this is the person who made it. This is how much it costs per pound for me to buy the entire cow or portion of the cow. I think that's an important setup to reestablish if, if what you want is a resilient food supply. Well, and you could also, you know, get creative and maybe you can't afford to vertically integrate your business, but a couple of guys could kind of co-op and say, Hey, let's set up our own sort of local butcher box thing. And people can pay X amount of dollars a month and they get this package and somebody delivers it and the producer produces it and the butcher butchers it. And you get, you could really work together to set up your own kind of, you know, uh, a system like that where everybody profits. And right now you can't do anything like that. I mean, I guess you can, but it's, it's much more difficult. Well, you know, I'll give you an example of, of the way people think about this is kind of funny, right? Because there's probably, well, maybe not this podcast, but in a general audience podcast, you'd have listeners that are like uncomfortable with the idea that they're not buying meat that isn't like shrink wrapped in the freezer section of their local grocer right? That seems mm-hmm. dangerous to them. And, and got that for, stuff on it. So it's red looking, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but for people in, in the hunting community, like, uh, how many, how many animals have you shot, like gutted, butchered on the ground, put mm-hmm. in a game bag that you hung from a tree while you camped that night, uh, and then backpacked it out the next day and butchered it on the table in your house. Probably and then hundreds. like you have friends that are like begging you for some elk sausage, right? Or begging you yep. for some, you know, for some deer roast or whatever it is. But for some reason in that context, it's normal and safe and we don't think twice about it. But in the context of livestock, uh, consumers have learned, uh, they've learned to not trust it uh, for some reason. It's not for some reason we, we know why that was an intentional part of the food safety, you know, movement 50 years ago. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we, te- we teach kids from kindergarten on to look to an authority figure for guidance. And it's like, that's transferred all the way up to the governmental level. At least that's what I think. What do you think, Javier? I, I, well, I like listening to you guys talk about it because um, I, you know, my opinions are um, they're so laced in sort of the 30,000 foot level, but the way, one of the things I want to touch upon what Joe said, the average person um, and, and I live in a metropolis. I live inside the loop of Houston, you know, inside of 5 million people who um, in a vast majority of my neighbors and friends um, do not walk into a grocery store anymore. It is mm-hmm. delivered and dropped off at their door and it's done by an app. And if they don't, and if they got the wrong thing, they go back on the app 
and have them come and pick it back up and return it to the store for them. The opening um, uh, sort of monologue you had, Braxton, was talking about simplifying lives and removing the steps and, 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 and taking sort of the meaning out of things. Um, two weeks ago, uh, I, my, one of my sons and his friend, they caught a bunch of largemouth bass. And we spent 20 minutes cleaning bass and then cooking the bass fillets. And these boys, my sons have cleaned fish, but the boys that we were with had never thought of this. They never thought, I'm going to clean this fish. I'm going to batter it and fry it. And it is going to taste fantastic. And I caught it. If you extrapolate that across the majority of people that you interact with on a daily basis, not you, Braxton, because of where you are, but I think likely Joe and I um, do not have any sense of what food from your plate, how it got there. They just don't understand it. It's it's this thing that's just known to them from the day that they were born. And now the, you've got an entire age group of people whose notion of shopping is with their thumbs. Um, that's, I think, partly why um, sort of the colonial pipeline thing was a little bit more dramatic than this JBS thing is. I'm The whole time we've been talking, I'm watching the, I'm still watching the news go through and it's not been mentioned once. Uh, it's not on any of the Bloomberg scrolling feeds. Um, and I think that's likely because you still have to, today, you still have to get out of your car and put a nozzle into your, your car and, and, and push um, 87, 89 or diesel. That's a very um, how do we, so, so what do we do, you know, and, and I'm, I'll pose it to this, to, to the two smart guys on the call, you know, hmm. what do you do? Um, well, I'll tell you what, what, what I've done in my personal life and, and Braxton and I, we've talked about this and, um, but then I, I'd like to hear feedback on it. So, um, I am leaving the city, talk to Braxton about it. I think I posted it on here. I'm, I'm gone uh, in, a, in three to four weeks. Um, I'll be back out in the country and I grew up rural most of my life. Urban was an experiment. Um, but I've spent a deliberate amount of time with my kids, even though we lived in a city. Um, I have one kid who rodeos full time, so it's not that hard. I'm in the I'm in a um, I'm in the country environment um, pretty regularly. But I I engage them in hunting and fishing and cleaning. Um, you know, if they shoot a deer, they clean their deer. Uh, they process their own meat. Um, we do obviously um, send some to processors for sausages and things we can't do. Um, I'm trying to be very intentional. Um, I, I'm, I look to people around me. I have a good idea of where I can go around the city of Houston to get a side of beef. I think I have four places I could go do that today. But what would you do? Like Joe or Braxton, like what would you tell people sort of as they listen to us? Because I think you guys probably have a better handle on it than I do of, of where to start. Most people just don't know. So I look, I, I'm... A, I'm a good experiment in this. Five years ago, uh, I wasn't really interested, didn't know anything about hunting or fishing, uh, no interest in what made plants grow or where food came from. And then uh, just randomly had a friend of mine who was uh, a, a very uh, committed and uh, philosophical hunter uh, brought me on a trip with him to hunt antelope. And through that experience, uh, I got interested in uh, more of the outdoors piece, where food comes from, how to you know manage lands for wildlife, 
uh, how does a crop grow? How do things grow in your backyard? What plants are good? What plants are bad? I think one of the one of the big pieces of this is my grandparents just default uh, by the time they were eighteen had a pretty broad suite of skills leaving high school, right? Like they could can food. They understood basically how to grow a crop. They could do basic mechanics. Like uh, my grandfather in the 1930s was like one of the first electricians in his little town in Kentucky. Uh, There's this whole suite of skills, hard skills that people had just as a part of growing up. So they understood how the things in the society around them worked in general. We've become so specialized as a society that we don't have that anymore. Most people around in a city, if you ask them, you'll find they, they maybe have one very specific technical skill, maybe, maybe they have that. Uh, but for the most part, most people don't even have a general idea how anything works, how a car runs, how their cell phone works, uh, how the plants in their yard grows, how things get together, anything like that, no clue how to do it. And so I think with, you know, one that's been intentional for me and it'll be intentional for my daughter is this expectation of like, what is the basic set of skills and understandings that you should have, not just to be like a quote, good, good citizen end quote, but uh, to, if you needed to, or decided to, to have a chance at sustaining yourself. Uh, because I, I think that is part of the question that makes for a strong society. Going back to my idea that America is a frontier society, American society is best when most of the people in that society feel somewhat independent from the large institutional and establishment structures. Like they don't need it in order to survive. That it might be nice to have, and it might be good to be a part of, but they could survive just as well on their own. Yeah, I think that's right. And it actually goes further than that. I think the country right now is experiencing a leadership crisis. And I was speaking to a friend, uh, Lafayette Lee, about this the other day on the phone. And uh, generalists are really important. And in fact, in order to be a good leader, you have to be a generalist. And right now, there are very, very few generalists in the country and even fewer in leadership positions. And I think that that's why you're seeing, you know, because you've got to be able to draw on a vast pool of knowledge in order to, or, a, you know, a vast array of knowledge in order to make command level decisions if you're running a gigantic bureaucracy. And instead, what we have done is elected a bunch of, you know, lawyers that specialize in law to run this country, and they don't actually understand the ground level of anything. So we've, you know, if you pulled your kids out of school to the extent that you can and homeschooled them, you can, you know, add and build in those skills on top of the the standard educational pieces and, and uh, create maybe that next generation. Now, that's not an instant fix, but I think it's very important. Another thing you can do is elect the very few generalists that are out there that are running somebody like Joe Kent. Um, really, that's the only one right now to me. But, you know, we need those kind of guys in and girls or whatever in positions of authority and, and we don't have them. And I think that's part of the problem. I mean, part of that Braxton is because we don't train that term generalist you're using mm -hmm. uh, has a specific connotation, you know, among the professional management class that is not somebody who generally understands how practical things work. It is somebody who generally understands uh, what are the, 
mainline uh, accepted narratives across uh, a suite of important disciplines mm. uh, and, and aren't actually, don't actually have any practical skills at them. And so that's one of the issues is, uh, you know, students are supposed to graduate high school or college being generalists, like that's the idea. The, the problem is we've changed the shape of what it means to be a generalist from being like, you can do this suite of basic things and you know some theoretical stuff to essentially now like that, that's anything practical isn't, isn't part of any curriculum at all. Right. And I would order, I would, I would argue rather that in order to be able to think in the abstract or th even think strategically to some level, you have to be able to understand the, the things that are going on at, you know, the sort of dirty hands level of a problem. And, you know, if, like say, if you homeschool your kids, if you're in a position to do that, you can add some of that in. But as of right now, I don't know exactly where we turn to find these. I, you know what? I, that's not true. The people are out there. They're just not running for yeah, office anywhere. I mean, just is what it is, you know. What do you think, Javier? <laughs> oh, did we lose him? He is still on. He might be muted. Okay. <laughs> He's up. You still there, Javier? Oh, okay. Yeah, well, he is muted, but go ahead. Yep. Uh, so I'll find out what you're saying. Like, I am not convinced that right now is a good time for the most qualified leaders to be running mm. for office. Interesting. I, I am not sure that the thing we're sending them into aren't the equivalent of sending them in uh, to the trenches of World War One, where we will just expend their political lives uh, crossing a no man's land that nobody can cross because the strategic situation of how war or how politics works has changed. And so we, we will recruit highly qualified people, people that we like, send them to DC, send them, you know, wherever. Uh, and then they just get expended for, for no real purpose. Mm. I, I think there's a consideration to make for, for people who would be good candidates to, before you run for office, like, and, and I wish more of these institutions existed because the, the left does have some of these institutions, but where could you go where you are honing your political leadership ability, uh, helping advance like y your community of common interest, no matter what that is, whether that's gonna be like agriculture or firearms or purse finance or whatever, uh, you know, where could you go for a few years, build these institutions that will ultimately be around to support you when you run for office so that you're not being sent into this distant capital where you're kind of going to be eat, eaten up by an existing uh, by an existing machine or an existing process. And that's it. That is what I worry that we are doing now and that the best energy for the most capable people um, are building the institutions that we need to have in the 21st century uh, to to not necessarily rival the current centralized institutions, but in order to counterbalance them. So oh, I am here. Uh, I had a technical. I had a technical uh, glitch. It would. I couldn't speak uh, for a moment. My Mrs. Goy would tell you that that'd be a great uh, button that she'd love to have. <laughs> um, Joe, what you said is is profound in many ways, um, and I've and I've had this conversation with with so many untold people. Um, last fall, my wife was actually approached to run against Dan Crenshaw in um, uh, to primary him. And starting with that conversation, we've had 
I, I've, we've been approached by so many different people asking the same question over and over. It's actually two questions. And it's the one, it's one that you said is one, how do you find the qualified people that are out there to run? Um, who are they and where are they? And the second question is why won't they run? And it is, well, okay, I have a fleet of these beautiful candidates, you know, a bunch of Joe Kent's. They exist. Joe Kent is by far the best candidate on the docket, but there are other people out there that have his, um, that have what he has that they can offer to their local congressional district. I think every congressional district has them. I think people with life experience, maybe not the same as his, but with uh, the same passion and I think the same moral fortitude that he has, uh, they do exist. Your point is is really profound, Joe. So one of the things that that I feel is moderately taboo, you can't discuss it in public. You can't discuss this in, 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 in quote, polite company. Um, and it is still the unanswered questions about the election. And you can say definitively the election was not rigged. You can say it was. Either way, the fact that 70% of Republicans, 65% of Republicans feel that at some level that it was not, that it was, that it was rigged or the election did not, was not right. Um, if you are in a position where you do believe that and you believe that a voting machine can be hacked or you believe um, through voter ID challenges or absentee ballots that you can determine a United States presidential election, if those answers are not clearly defined, if you cannot unequivocally state that they are a 100%, call it a 99.5% Puritan election, the 5% is, na you know, 0.5%, whatever it is, natural errors that occur. But it's a pr you're pretty dang sure that United States elections are solid. If you can't say that, and if you can't prove it, and it should be very simple to prove. The whole entire idea behind election security is nonsense to me. I think it's pretty simple that I think smart people could have this thing sorted out on a one-page document in about a minute um, and come up with a way to implement it. But there are obviously obvious reasons why that doesn't happen. If you can't guarantee the sanctity of a United States election for the office of president, then all bets are off. And people like that. I would say of sound moral character of um, having, and, and I think both sides probably have those people. I think I'm not making this a conservative liberal, um, um, you know, what he, they, we, we, they, he, she type argument. I'm stating unequivocally, if we can't make certain that election security is intact, who would want to be a part of it? How in the world can you convince somebody to go into a machine nation um, that isn't secure like that. I, I personally wouldn't, and that, I'll be honest, that's the reason why Mrs. Goya um, chose not to be a part of a campaign in today's time. She's going to wait. Let uh, me give you a, a couple things to think about from somebody who's been a part of literally hundreds of campaigns from uh, governor to like the lo lowest local office you can think of uh, as a consultant, as, as a staffer. Um, so first, an untold story about running for office. Uh, disproportionate number of people who run for office uh, end up divorced, poorer than they were, and their kids hate them by the time they leave. Mm. Nobody likes to talk about that in my world because you got to recruit candidates and you want them to uh, run so that they can run. But the reality is when you take somebody and you ask them to spend 
100 days, 150 days, 200 days a year uh, away from their home and away from their family. Uh, and you ask it, you ask them to do it in a place where they're basically being courted all day long by anybody who wants anything, uh, you're, you're asking for a family disaster. Uh, and it happens time and time and time again. Uh, and even the guys I know who leave and have their families intact, it was the worst part of their marriage. Uh, and it created a ton of strife for themselves uh, with their children. And we have this narrative that everybody who runs ends up richer. That's true if you're in Congress long enough to get a leadership position. It's not true for most people who run for um, office that requires them to travel. Local office is a little different on that. The second thing I, I, I bring up on the concern about election security, it, it's valid. It's another example of where uh, we went with efficiency, where we should have went with resiliency. Efficiency are like really sophisticated computerized election terminals. Resiliency would have been a paper ballot is by the time you're arguing about election law, you've already lost. And this is something yeah. the left understands huh. that the right still doesn't. The yeah. right, we spend all of our time being like, we're gonna get them in the next election. We're gonna get them in 2022. <laughs> and then we're gonna win the White House in 2024. Like, okay, you've lost literally everything else. You don't control the media. So no reporter is gonna pay attention to it. Like you, you have some foothold in the judicial system, but you don't push the advantage by funding lawsuits to like bring these things to a true fruition and not just on elections, but on any other issue. Uh, you, you don't, you don't have anybody, um, you know, you're losing your foothold in corporate America. You don't have representation now in the major law firms in a significant way. So the, the problem is we, we try to effectively, uh, lose everything in the culture and then go win an election every two years, which isn't a sustainable strategy. It's a losing strategy in the long term, And it's why anybody on the conservative or center, right? Like keeps ending up adopting whatever the slightly more left positions are every 10 years. Like a Republican today is just a Democrat from 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, now look, there's some changes in the coalition that matter, but the problem isn't until there's a concerted effort to go engage in the culture and go engage in cultural institutions or build brand new institutions. Like the elections are great, like they're okay. It's at best like a fire break against a raging inferno that eventually is gonna jump over the break. So th that is my rant on uh, elections and running for office and why <laughs> institution building and institution taking is far more important. And you see this right now so clearly in what's going on uh, in schools and urban and suburban areas. Well, well I Joe, I'm, I'm glad you said it because it sounds, <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly, Joe. Thanks for the good news. Um, <laughs> so, okay, because you're so ingrained in this, I, I want to go to the 30,000 foot level where I exist because my world um, is not political at all, unless you count me working for a, a very large global corporation. Um, I have no interest usually in, and I don't need politicians in my day-to-day -day work or, or whatever, but I do interact with many of them on occasion. So the way I view this is that we've created this dichotomy of, of left-right, right? So in this shift of everything moving left, it seems to me, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because the conspiracy theorist in me, and I sent something out that, that I, I meant that 20 years ago, I felt like a conspiracy theorist, but today I believe I'm being proven right, is that the change in urbanization um, from, from, from an agrarian society to an urban society in China, the exportation of their people and the usage of our and the world's trade surplus of dollars into renminbi's 
and redistributed out into the world via digitalization has played a part in this. The influence of China in every aspect of our daily lives, whether we want to talk about it or not, it has 100% affected American politics. And it's created a um, the ability for people to turn a blind eye to events that take place, right? Because you don't want to piss off the Chinese, right? Because I might not be able to get an iPhone for Christmas. I might not be able to get my superconductor. Tesla's Elon Musk isn't going to get enough lithium or cobalt for his batteries. They've created this, this, this system globally, and I see it every day in imports and exports and what we're bringing in and how you get to the front of the line. And, and it's become this thing where whatever they're buying and whatever they're selling is the most important thing on the docket of the day. They've put themselves into this position where we are sitting here. We think, oh, well, we're the United States. We have this great military. We have this, you know, we're the wealthiest country on the planet. But, you know, we've now become a country that's paying citizens to stay home and not work. We've become a country that every single thing is has, is, is being bought or sold by our phones. And, and yet we have a political class that is beholden to policy that absolutely 100% allows their influence in our universities, allows their influence in, in corporations, allows their influence in land ownership, um, agriculture, meat packing. It become, it's become this giant red flag. My grandfather lived 100 years. He was born in 1904, he died in 2004. And one of the things he taught me when I was a young boy was he, he sat me down, all, he sat all my brothers down, and he was just giving us stories. Um, and and he was too old, sorry, he was too young for World War One, and he was too old for World War Two. but he he was also from Kentucky. And um, every person that went to World War Two was qualified on the rifle on open sites via him. He was the qualifier for rifle for World War Two. And in one of his little diatribes on life, as he was getting older, um, he said, life is interesting because you were very, it's very easy for you to walk past one little tiny red flag. He goes, but then there's those days you turn around and you see nothing but thousands of red flags you walked past and a trail leading right to your feet. And it's a bunch of mistakes that you just walked right past. And I fear we're doing that in everything we talk about with China. And everyone's like, oh, Javier, he, he doesn't like China. He's, he's anti-China. Well, here we are. And Joe, when you talk about sort of the shift in political landscape, and I see the shift in China, and I see what they've done over the past two decades, I have a hard time not drawing a connection between the two. What say you? So look, I think one of the unique insights of the Chinese as compared to any other frenemy or adversary in US history was this. The Chinese looked at what happened in uh, World War One and World War II uh, and what happened to the Russians, and they were like, there's just too damn many Braxtons running around America. Like we're, we're just never like beating them in a war is is stupid. Uh, you know, the, the communist revolution isn't going to work that way, but they'll sell stuff to us and we can buy stuff from them. So the Chinese insight was realizing that we might not give the United States and we not give our power over to them, but we might be willing to sell it to them. Uh, and that's effectively what we've spent 20 or 30 years doing is, is selling uh, power, so to speak, whether that's in terms of economic or cultural. 
uh, to, to the Chinese. Uh, you know, the, the other part of that is there's this dilemma in economics called the Trithin dilemma, which is uh, this conflict that if you're going to be the global reserve currency, what you have to do eventually is print enough of your currency that you send it to other countries so they have it and can keep it in reserve. And then you have to let them do things in order for you to send that currency. So in China's case, manufacture. So there's part of this that this was a known dilemma, you know, basically since the late 50s, early 60s, uh, that was going to be a problem down the road of that we would end up funding some other country or set of countries uh, who would then have the resources to use to rival what is in our best interest. And that's what's happening. Again, what is what is the best route with China? It's building institutions that at their core are seated not to be influenced by the Chinese government. So whether that is uh, supporting schools that don't take Chinese money or founding new schools that don't take Chinese money, the, the same in media, the same in products, uh, you know, products that aren't made in China, even if they're, it's not economically viable to make them in the United States, making them in another country that's at least more friendly to our interest. Um, it, it's those set of things that matter. I think the problem, the whole decoupling argument with China is, is a good idea and we should do it. But the reality is, you know, we've spent 30 years giving China the ability to make everything that we need, uh, it it's not going to take too much less that amount of time to bring it back. Uh, you just don't build factories over the night. Uh, you don't build the factories that build the machines those factories need overnight. It, it takes a long time to do that. And so I think in the meantime, the best thing to do, build cultural institutions that at their, that are framed to be resistant to, to Chinese influence. Can we do that? And look, uh, so th this is where I think if you have a wife or a friend or another family member that is interested in public service, you look for look for places where they can go and have a meaningful impact in, in institutions that matter. So, you know, in some places that could be the local school board, in some places that could be founding a charter school, in some places that could be, uh, you know, going to work for, uh, you know, one of the upstart independent media companies. Uh, you know, in some places, like the, the simplest version is like more involvement, uh, you know, at, at a local church or a local religious institution. Uh, and the reason I, I point out the religious institution thing is a big part of this is where does the moral backing from the culture come from? What's happened in the United States is we've spent a long time seeding uh, any Judeo-Christian value as the moral backing for the framework of the United States. Um, and like we have this void and what's filling it uh, is, is woke culture. Like you might not like it, but, but it, it fills a moral void that exists for a lot of people. Uh, and so making existing religious institutions stronger is, is important. Uh, I, I don't think that you can, I don't think that you can win the fight just winning. Uh, look, it's not, it's, it's, it's not that you don't want to have majorities in the House and Senate and certainly in your state government. Uh, that's obviously been so important at the state level the last year or two. But if all you do is, is you know, win elections every couple of years 
uh, and then you don't do anything with that power or like it's a swing seat. And so you're just out in, in four years, like you're not making progress on the culture and where everything is being lost is it's not being lost in the statute books. It's being lost like in the hearts of American citizens. Like they're becoming unmoored from what it means to be an American. They're unmoored from constitutional values. Uh, they're unmoored from the civil rights movement. They're unmoored from uh, you know, what the Civil War meant. They're just kind of floating in this space where nothing has real meaning except the meaning you individually decide to assign to it. And, so and that, obviously that, the point you just finished way. on, mm -hmm. they, they've, they've become unmoored from faith. Sure, yeah. Um, in, in anything, right? Because part of what's happened with the management class of the country, and I'm not a person who says like, oh, all elites are bad and you don't need elites. Like in theory, like you want the people who are the most competent and capable like running things. That would be really great for everybody. Um, we, we haven't done a good job maintaining the meritocracy for, for a very long time. Uh, but part of that, what's happened is instead of leading and being able to lead by like asserting, hey, what is the purpose and meeting of the country? Where are we going? Uh, it's just been management. And so how do you manage them? Like, I don't know, keep them fed, keep them entertained, give them a check. That's how you manage people and we're managing them into oblivion. Like we, we are basically going to manage the society into a place where 20 or 30 or 40% of people like live alone in a one bedroom apartment uh, and, you know, pretty much just like watch VR porn uh, and get high all day and, you know, live on some sort of like UBI credit they get sent. Like that, that's where we're headed. Like that is one direction the culture is headed. Yeah. It's like a modern technologically or technological opium den. And, and uh, yeah, I agree. And sometimes I wonder we're, we're, almost out of time here but sometimes i wonder if this isn't just you know dostoevsky's piano keys i'm sure you're <laughs> you know um yeah for anybody who's not aware of that i'll read it at the intro of this but you know it's hard not to believe that that's a, a part of what's going on you know that like things get too comfortable and uh for in order for man just to prove that he's alive he's got he's got to destroy stuff you know and make things uncomfortable again and sometimes i wonder if that's not what's happening right now well there's there's two types of nihilism <laughs> like what one type of nihilism is just pure pleasure seeking like if life has no meaning and i'm here for a short time i just need to pursue like what you know what pleases me and then maybe i'll be limited by that to like the extent of like i don't want to hurt other people uh, but that's a personal limitation and maybe there's some, you know, evolutionary or biological, like we, we, most people don't enjoy hurting other people. So like nihilism, there is no meaning, no purpose, just pursue pleasure. That's all that matters. Mm -hmm. The other side of that, that some people pursue on the nihilism angle angle is like, if, if life is devoid and empty and meaningless, and I am devoid, empty, and meaningless, I feel pain, uh, I want to make other people feel that pain. And that's what school shooting and mass shooting is about. Uh, mm. You know, th there's some ideological ends, ends of that that aren't like their actual action. Most of them are like, uh, most of them are psychological reflections of like this broader cultural nihilism that hits the people that are like mentally weakest uh, and, and prone to violence like that. Be I mean, that's why prior to the, 1990s like you really didn't have a lot of school shootings you really didn't have a lot of mass shootings but they've become so prevalent today is you basically have raised now two going on three generations of children where 
the culture fundamentally communicates to them that there's no purpose for their lives. And it not, yeah, I mean, it, it explicitly, you know, Carl Sagan clear back in the 70s with the pale blue dot and all of that. I mean, this is, you know, and now it's been marketed as a cartoon cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. So, yeah, I mean, they, they flat out say it to them now. When I was a kid, we had Pinocchio, you know, and the whole Pleasure Island thing, you know, that was a uh, sort of a mythological example or whatever. So it was an example through story of what happens if you just seek pleasure, right? You turn into a brain jackass, you know? Um, and now our culture, you know, with, between Instagram and, uh, well, just everything that's on the television too, you know, it's been teaching these kids since they were little that, you know, happiness is some sort of, uh, happiness is derived, is derived from some sort of, um, you know, the, the pleasure centers of your brain rather than, mm -hmm. you know, fulfillment is a different thing. Like, so now we let me we give you a pleasure. closing, like tangible example of, mm -hmm. of how one of the ways that's that's occurring right now in our society. <laughs> Pfizer has started buying uh, Viagra ads on media targeted to 18 to 35 year olds, Whoa. Uh, specifically uh, gamers, people who spend a lot of time, uh, you know, Whoa. on the computer on media. The reason they started buying that is, is they started picking up that there is a growing rate of erectile dysfunction among men in that age cohort. Whoa. The reason there's erectile dysfunction in men in that age cohort uh, is because of internet pornography. So effectively what happens is uh, the dude gets online, goes and surfs, uh, you know, picks his you know, favorite uh, porn site, goes and surfs the clips for whatever he's into. The whole time he's doing it, uh, there's this thing called edging, which is where he gets just to the edge of ejaculation, but doesn't do it because he's waiting to find the video that is most gratifying for him before he ejaculates. Mm. So what this has created is this generation of men who through, you know, this e extreme, like, you know, cyber sexual availability uh, are effectively rendered impotent because they're, when they're around real women, they can't maintain erection because uh, they, they are so used to passing on uh, ejaculation from their use of pornography. Uh, and they're used to having like extreme visual stimulation uh, that, that they can't do it. So uh, that is to me an, a great example of how uh, you know, not, not having meaning, not having a baseline morality, even a sexual ethic and sexual ethic is the thing we are most aggressively throwing out the window right now as a culture, um, it, like ultimately produces like an impotent society. And in this case, quite literally. You mean to tell me that the gamer nerds are so, so like so good at gaming that they turned porn into a video game. <laughs> I, I, I have, I have no words at this point. <laughs> well, I mean, look, the human mind was never designed to, to see whether you believe in evolution or you believed like you were created by by God, like the human mind in either instance was not designed to be exposed to that level of sexual content on an ongoing basis. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, you guys are uh, you guys have uh, opened my eyes to a lot today. Um, I, I, I was I just want to end. um one by thanking you, Braxton, for for one putting this together and allowing us to uh, pontificate and rant a little bit. Um, it's it's always fun. And then um, I, th I think one of the things for my closing on this uh, really relates back to this JBS and colonial hack. And and I get so many questions from people. And and I'm not a survivalist. I'd say I'd say I'm not really 
Um, I wouldn't be on the top list of anybody's prepper type things or sort of urban survivalist. Uh, I, I'm just an average guy, right? And um, I, I'm, a, I'm a guy that grew up around weapons, but not uh, did not serve. Um, but I've had weapons in my life, my whole life. Um, I, you know, I can, I've shot a 25 in trap and I've shot a 24 in skeet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working hard on, on raising my kids to be sufficient. And as Joe amazingly pointed out, uh, coming out of sort of that high school era, much more well-rounded than, you know, being able to, uh, cheat on a standardized exam. And, um, and I'm, I'm just trying to make my way through, through what happens, right? So if you end up in a beef shortage or you end up in, in an oil shortage or with what we went through here in February in Texas with the, with the ice storm, um, how are you prepared for these things? And, and you're not sitting there with your hands on your mouth going, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know, how do I survive? Uh, how do I prepare? You know, how do I make sure that I have protein for my family or I'm able to grow um, some sort of an urban garden or even a, a country garden. I mean, I think the idea that, 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 you know, like this, this 18 to sort of 32 years old, they don't do these things. Um, you know, I, I have a 23 year old and he's graduated college and he's out on his own. And we talked about it the other day, he's in town for a little bit and we're sitting here just catching up and he's got one friend of his that, uh, grows a garden and the rest of them. And, I didn't necessarily do that at that age, but these kids have never been exposed to it. I grew up with it. Uh, I think a lot of people I know grew up with that. And I think urbanization has really created an unprepared for um, minor disruptions in your life. If the beef packers 30 years ago were quote hacked and there was a beef shortage, you, I don't think it, it wouldn't be dramatic. It wouldn't have been wouldn't be nearly as dramatic, I think, as what I think is good. This could end up with. Um, I think it could affect the supply chain even greater than we were talking about a month ago or three weeks ago, um, and pro and have a profound effect on it. So, um, I I answer people's questions. For some reason, they ask me. Um, one, I, I am I always try to get back to faith. Whatever you find for faith in a person, you, you better figure out what you believe um, before you can actually determine what good and not good for your family. If you don't know what to believe, um, you'll never know what to believe. Um, so I always start with that. And the second, I, I always like to start with with my family and I like to make sure that um, that we're all on the same page or we're not. I've got I've got some family, you know, that that it just doesn't work, but we always try to have a plan. We always try to take care of each other. We always try to figure out where they're doing, what they're going, uh, where they're going, who's going to be doing what, um, where do you go if there's an emergency, who's got what. And then I go back, then I start in my community. And and like I asked earlier, I don't think it's hard to reach out into your own community, make friends with your butcher, find these guys. You know, if you're, you know, it's, I don't think it's hard to find these processors, these guys that do the wild game. I think you can make friends with people and you can just go in and ask dumb questions. I mean, if you don't know how to um, process a, or field dress a deer um, or birds, or you don't know how to bird hunt, there's a lot of people out here that would gladly show you or take you or introduce you into hunting, introduce you into basic um, basic weapons ownership. Um, I know in Texas, we're going to, we're probably likely going to lose, uh, we're going to go to constitutional carry, which I think is funny because it's basically, we're just reverting back to what we should have had to begin with. Um, I do think that people, before they start walking around, um, with their, their newly acquired firearms, they get some training. Um, and then, and then I think the last thing that I would close with, um, is these is your community that sort of goes outside of your community and what Joe touched on your local politics and your county sheriff, your school board, um, because people are always asking me, what do I do? 
I think you start there. And I think also um, if you follow all three of us on Twitter, we all have links, or at least we had links that go and point towards um, different types of publications uh, and books. And we have lots of friends who are authors on things that are smarter than us at each of these individual things and can help. So in closing, um, thanks Braxton, thanks Joe. I really appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, that's a great way to wrap it up. Thank, thank you, you all both for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Okay, talk to you guys later. Thank you. See you. Thank you all for listening. If you like the show, please share with your friends. That's the best way to help us at this time. And also leave a rating and a review. Now, I told you I would read you all a little excerpt from Notes from the Underground, written by Fyodor Dostoevsky. That's what I was referencing. So here it is. Even if man were nothing but a piano key, even if this were proved to him by natural science and mathematics, even then he would not become reasonable, but would purposely do something perverse out of sheer ingratitude, simply to have his own way. Then, after all, perhaps only by his curse will he obtain his object, that is, really convince himself that he is a man and not a piano key. If you say that all this, too, can be calculated and tabulated, then man would purposely go mad in order to be rid of reason and have his own way. Fyodor Dostoevsky, Notes from the Underground. I don't know if he's right, but I think he's right. And especially when you look around right now and see just the sort of nightmarishness of our politics and combine that with how rich and well-off we are and, you know, modern medicine and all of these wonderful things that we have in America. It's hard for me, at least, as just a simple idiot horse trainer, not to believe that we're just trying to prove to ourselves that we are men and not piano keys. See you next time.